Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. The time is February 2001. The place is the borough of Queens in New York City in the neighborhood of Astoria. Yours truly curmudgeons were roommates in a very old but nifty three-bedroom apartment that, to this day, I still get nostalgic about. I was working a menial job as a production assistant at a small publishing company. Chris was working a less menial but no more fulfilling job. We were both 25-year-old outsider geeks still finding ourselves in the world and within ourselves. Sex and the city, this was not. (laughs) But we did have some good times and we enjoyed ourselves. A big part of that was our mutual music nerdiness that had the most perfect locational outlet imaginable in New York City itself, the musical center of the country. Ah, yes, countless Saturdays spent spending our meager earnings at other music, Greenwich Village's definitive hipster record store that specialized in obscurities and rarities for music aficionados like us. Going to shows three to four times a month at legendary venues such as Irving Plaza, the Bowery Ballroom, the Knitting Factory and even smaller bars all across the city. We were always pretty eclectic with our musical taste. Chris's freakiness trended toward hardcore hip-hop and underground urban dance music, which eventually rubbed off on me, while my freakiness trended toward exotic sounds from Africa and my burgeoning interest in the Brazilian Tropicalia movement of the 1960s and 70s. At this time, though, We found a rock and roll commonality in our indie rock preferences, namely Built to Spill, Modest Mouse, Slater Kinney, and, at least for me, Pavement. This was the musical context we found ourselves in when, one day in February 01, Chris was tipped off by one of his music journalist contacts about this new band from Detroit called The White Stripes. I forget the particulars, but we somehow scored tickets to see this band we had never heard of or heard heard before. We scored tickets to see them at the Bowery Ballroom on February 28th. Yes, I looked online to find the exact date of the show. We didn't think much of it, much less to listen to this band's music, and chalked it up to being fortunate enough to score affordable tickets to see a random show. Cool beans. 
What we saw that evening on that stage was, without exaggeration, rock and roll reborn. It was everything we loved about 1960s garage rock, everything we loved about blues-infused classic 1970s heavy rock a la Led Zeppelin, everything we loved about the raw primal fury of 1970s punk, and everything we loved about the postmodern, self-consciously cool attitude of 1990s alternative rock, wrapped up in a fresh, stylish, aesthetically colorful, emotionally charged, minimally conceptual, and artistic package that inverted rock's DNA while providing a 500 megawatt jolt to its nervous system. Seemingly in one fell swoop, mookish rap metal was dead and a thing of the past. Our beloved indie rock faves, while still great, weren't so cutting edge anymore. The White Stripes brand of raw, dirty, gritty, loud, gut bucket, garage blues punk was, at the time and to us and to a lot of the underground music cognoscenti at the time, the most exciting sound in rock music since a certain trio from Aberdeen, Washington that shall remain nameless busted onto the scene exactly 10 years earlier. Between that time and July of that year, which is when they released their third album, White Blood Cells, which would be their breakthrough, I devoured and was obsessed with their first two albums, the self-titled debut and Distill. Little did I or Chris know that the White Stripes would go on to be the defining band of the first decade of the 21st century, the last die-in-the-wool, blood-and-guts rock and roll band that would be both critically acclaimed and commercially huge. In light of this, yours truly curmudgeons, ask the question, were they the last great American rock and roll band? We'll try to answer that in this latest episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, The White Stripes, A Legacy. Twenty-five years ago, there was a young guy named uh, John Gillis uh, who uh, lived in Detroit, about 21 years old. And, you know, he was a kind of a creative, uh, curious, almost savantic, uh, if that's a word, uh, type. And he had managed to find his way into opening an upholstery store, uh, which means he was probably on his way to a successful life because upholsters do pretty well for themselves. Uh, it's a good thing that he had this uh, other interest on the side known, known as uh, rock and roll and playing guitar, and uh, he found his way into founding the White Stripes. We're talking about Jack White, of course. Uh, this will be a good episode, man. I, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think of John Gillis, who later became Jack White, is exactly our age. He was born in 1975, yes. uh, like yep. we were, and the White Stripes. Yeah. In 2001, 2002, 2003, the White Stripes are basically a big part of the soundtrack to our mid-20s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I love that you uh, brought back up uh, the uh, the story of how we like literally stumbled into finding uh, out about the White Stripes. Yeah. You know, again, it was just like, you know, we had a buddy coming into town and it's like, well, what are we going to do? And so, you know, I like look around and I had... Uh, 
I had only heard of the band and they were starting to get some buzz. Cause remember that was like ground floor of the whole garage right. thing where, you yeah. know, like the sweet, it's like the soundtrack to our lives. And some of those uh, Swedish bands were starting to get a push yeah. first. The high. And then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, so, you know, was able to track down uh, these tickets, having never heard them, uh, didn't even know what they looked like, just that they were a buzz band. And Hey, they were at the Bowery ballroom, had been there in a little while. And so, you know, you, me, and two of our uh, college buddies, we venture out, we uh, wanted to eat first. So we found this, you know, just sort of randomly. And we used to do this back then. Oh, yeah, this place looks interesting. And so, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we wait in line for like 20 minutes, it turns out to be like one of those uppity ass uh, uh, restaurants. And yeah. you know, we, t- we, we take a seat, we order appetizers and this, uh, you know, the very metrosexual dickhead manager comes in and, and kicks us out basically for ordering out, you know, how dare you, you're at a table and I have all these people that are going to pay real money and how dare you order appetizers. <laughs> and yeah, I remember I got pissed. But anyway, we went over to the show and uh, absolutely got blown away. Because yeah. uh, just visually at the time too, you know, they were still doing their red and white uh, thing. But they also like Jack White, like had a setup where he had two mics at an angle and all these like foot pedals in front of him. Mm. and just you know choosing different mics and angles and all this other stuff and just like watching him work and then you had meg white who's like this cute girl who was like playing her drum set like toys you know just boom 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 and so it's like okay and it just had a very hypnotic effect Mm. it was it was kind of like what happened what would happen if like you had let's up when it took away everyone except jimmy page yeah Yeah. and then just like hired some bum off the street to you know uh, be the drummer. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was just kind of extraordinary. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about that vibe. And we, both of us immediately knew that band was special. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to go online, try and find the concert, the vintage concert poster for that February 28th show at the Bowery. <laughs> See if I can find yeah. it. <laughs> hey, trivia. Do you remember who opened? Oh God. I think I do. Oh, was it was it that feminist punk band? Yes, the gossip. The gossip, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was underwhelmed by them. Yeah, they were a fun show. I mean, they weren't a great band, but they were a fun show. Like Big Girl and a Cat on Nine Tails, you know. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know, more power to her. But yeah, it was a fun night. It was a night of of, uh, of discovery, and yeah, it was definitely indicative of how we was rolling when we was twenty five years old, living yeah. in. Going to restaurants and order only appetizers. That was our style. <laughs> Apparently it made us dickheads, which, <laughs> which, you know, obviously for us made them dickheads. Why? Because we didn't fit in in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, we were like the worst Manhattanites on the face of the planet. We fit you know? in Queens though. <laughs> we definitely fit in Queens. We definitely fit in that neighborhood. <laughs> and that, that might speak to why uh, I fit in in suburban Houston and you fit in a few hours outside of Seoul, South Korea here in uh, 2022. Yeah. So uh, on on that note, uh, shall we go through the wormhole into the parallel universe? Let's do that. Let's get out of our comfort zone and into this other weird world where rock music is still a pop cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everybody over there has weird mustaches and wears like red and white outfits. And, you know, everybody's in a costume and, and we all love them. Uh, hey, you know, which, which reminds me, uh, are we not men? No, we are Devo and we still are in the parallel universe. That's right. Yeah, there you go. So, yep, uh, simple concept, folks. Uh, this is where we cover uh, 
new and exciting albums by either new and exciting bands or old exciting artists that still don't get their due, uh, what have you, what have you. So Arturo, what album do you have in your queue here in the Parallel Universe uh, this yes. episode? Hailing from the Netherlands, Personal Trainer uh, was the musical vehicle for and is now the full-time, full-blown band centered around singer-songwriter Willem Smit um, in the parallel universe where rock music is still a popular worldwide, you know, pop cultural force in pop music. Um, Personal Trainer would be one of this year's breakout bands. The previous three years saw them release various singles and an EP on various European-based indie labels. However, this year, Los Angeles-based independent label Industry, that's the name of the the label, Industry, put out their full-length debut album this year, Big Love Blanket. Um, Several lazy reviews, including one in Mojo magazine, compared them extensively to Pavement. Now, while the essence of Pavement's snarky humor and ironically slacker exuberance certainly permeate throughout the record. The comparison is really off base. What personal, yeah, 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 what exactly what personal trainer truly evoke is 1990s Brit pop filtered through the prism of the poppier side of American indie rock. Think blur meets Ben Queller augmented by the more humorous side of eels. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um, the album is pretty good yeah it is yeah. I, I like this album a lot uh the album yeah. starts with the title track a near acapella intro that slams into the laser an amalgam of every great sing-along indie rock anthem you've ever heard it's the best song damon alburn wishes he could have written um rug busters ends the album's excellent one two three punch with the best driving dance rock banger that uh, James Murphy and LCD sound system never produced. Uh, it's that good. Other great tracks, Key of Ego combines a throwdown grunge racket with a twisty prog rock song structure. The Money Department is the only song that vaguely remembers, remember, uh, resembles Pavement. And even then, it's less Stephen Malkmus and more Scott Canberg's lo-fi bubblegum. Yeah. Uh, and then you have a Valserberg hero, uh, Valserberg, I think, is a town in the Netherlands. But anyway, it recalls the melancholy indie jangle pop of uh, early Silver Jews. Uh, yes, you can play a game of spot the influence with Personal Trainer. But if yeah. you're into any of the bands and artists that I mentioned above, you will find that this band evokes them rather than regurgitates or flat out rips them off. In fact, I contend that this is or this band, this album... It's a refreshing, lighthearted, yet no less intelligent and heartfelt redefining of classic indie rock for the 21st century. That's what's going on here, I think. I like this album, and I'm excited to hear what Willem Smith does in the future. Chris? Yeah, uh, this is a testament to the fact that there's a difference between genre and idiom. Mm. Uh, Idiom in the sense that there is such a thing as uh, 1990s indie rock jangle pop, uh, sort of, uh, inventive, uh, pretty, mm-hmm. uh, power punk or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, there is uh, such a thing. It's interesting because, uh, and I'll admit, I have to spend more time with this record. I mean, I, uh, in, you know, I took a couple of breezy listens to it just to get a sense of it, but, uh, it, just in terms of the melodies and the mood 
of it and kind of the, the energy of it. Uh, the first two bands I thought of were Fountains of Wayne and Archers of Loaf. Mm, I can uh, definitely hear Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, Archers, I mean, it, it, that's a little bit more spurious, but it had that same kind of, you know, you have that kind of like, you know, like w- the taste of like warm chocolate milk in your mouth kind of, ooh, you know, it it kind of it kind of had that. Uh, Eels is a good call uh, yeah. in terms of the, the mood. Uh, Silver Juice is actually a pretty good call, too, because it does have a little bit of that deadpan uh, yeah. to it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is basically a, a tour back through the 90s. Uh, I was surprised to hear Mojo go there with the pavement comparison because, like, where in the hell is that coming from? With the exception of some attitude and the fact that, yeah, okay, fine, you know, the the sort of the the, the slacker white boy rock, uh, we associate that with, like, 96, 97, and who was the face? Pavement. But that's a very lazy, la- very lazy free association uh, and makes me wonder if the, uh, the reviewers, like, 28, and uh, only grew up with pavement ex post facto. Yeah. So uh, there you go. Uh, now let's make a, a little bit of a, of a switch. So months ago it was what, maybe like six months ago, nine months ago on this show, hmm. uh, you, you and I, it was actually on the same episode where we uh, showered Big Thief with yeah. love. Yeah. Uh, we shit showered this one band. What was it? Black Country New Road. Yeah. Uh, we shit showered them with uh, with scorn because yeah, uh, their their album is uh, from this year is showing up on best of uh, uh, on uh, some of these uh, even like reputable reput- uh, magazines and instead of like you know dick sucking like you know British like fanzines, uh, they're showing up on top ten lists. Uh, but what I'm covering this week is a testament that you know these like seven or eight piece collective artsy fartsy bad bands. Uh, can have their slivers of magic, uh, that they do have uh, members. They might not be the maestro or they might not be the, uh, you know, the artiste in the front, but they have their own thing uh, going on. And so I'm uh, going to be talking a little bit about this band called Jockstrap. Uh, and uh, this is the, uh, this is a project of a member of Black Country New Road, uh, Georgia Ellery, who turns out to be really, really compelling. Um uh, her shtick is basically electro, uh, it's like EDM, R&B, and uh, Sunshine Pop. Uh, the EDM is much better than the Sunshine Pop. No uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's worth talking about. And one of the, the things about it is over the next couple of months, uh, at the end of every year, and it used not to be as big of an issue now, uh, back then as it is now. It's uh, For me, end of the year is always catch up. Mm. And it's kind of like, okay, what, what are the albums that people are talking about here at the end of the year? And, and so, okay, there were the, a lot of these albums that were showing up on a bunch of the lists. Uh, and uh, there is one commonality with all of these, except for Jockstrap. I mean, in terms of the European British stuff that was showing up on these lists, everything else, boring. Yeah. Really, really boring. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of fans of Fontaine's BC. Uh, I guess I can kind of understand that thematically because, you know, they're Irish guys talking about being Irish and stuck in England. Yeah. Uh, boring. I, and I, uh, I, think Alex- that, I, think, I think more than that, they suck ass. I can oh, only okay. count like two or three songs across three albums that I like. Yeah. And then you got Alex G who's okay. He's got chops, but he's also really boring. He had a great uh, album eight years ago. 
Yeah, back when he was Sandy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then uh, I can't even I can't even remember it off the top of my head, but like Mojo had an album that almost no one else had on their lists as their number one, and that's another boring one. Yeah, too. My- Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band. They are a band that no one outside the older generation of writers inside the Mojo offices know anything about. Yeah, and they reminded me more of Big Head Todd and the Monsters than uh, <laughs> than anything. They're, they're that kind of like uh, you know, kind of uh, charming. What what would you call them? Like pained pop, you yeah. know? Yeah, like like pained pained almost kind of sort of uh, bar rock. Uh, right. So so anyway, that's just a little bit of an origin story why I'm covering Jockstrap because they really do some compelling stuff. Uh, and so they're a duo. There's Georgia Ellery. Like I said, she's a young gal who is in Black Country, uh, New Road, uh, with their a bunch of art school grads, uh, 2016, 2017 art school uh, grads, as is uh, she. But uh, And then she has a friend, a guy named Taylor Skye, who does most of the, uh, the programming and the electronics and a lot of the arrangement. Uh, but uh, Georgia Ellery, she's a very good singer. Uh, she has a little bit of an R&B tinge, but she can also, and yeah, she ain't this good, but she can also kind of evoke the uh, the Beth Gibbons hmm. from uh, Portishead and Tracy Thorne from Everyone But Everybody But The Girl, uh, kind of, sul- you know, sultry, uh, you know, sort of uh, chill, how chill house yeah. uh, vocals. And so, you know, there's a few songs on here. Greatest Hits is the name of the song. It's a sexy, hooky little R&B tune. It has a real sensuous uh, ambient electronic arrangement to it. Um, and then there's uh, a few songs at the end of the record that are really good. Glasgow, which is this really pretty harp and strings driven, almost like beach pop uh, type of song. But in the middle, it has this sort of acoustic guitar and harmony breakdown. It almost like you know, it is ev- evocative of like Zuma era Neil Young. It's kind of a really strange but no, uh, little, but no, nowhere near as good. Well, duh. I mean, you know, I believe me. I'm I'm covering them because they're compelling and interesting and pretty good. Remember, that's the theme of this year. Yeah, the year of the pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and they're worth hearing. And and I could see why people like them because they yeah they do make a solid effort to be a little different. Uh, the the title song actually is really good. Uh, the name of the album, by the way, is I Love You, Jennifer B. Uh, and then the title song, Jennifer B, is actually really good because it's this nice sort of, um, what, would you, what would you call it? It's almost like an emotional pop, uh, like an electro pop, almost uh, noirish kind of feel to it about a friend, obviously named uh, Jennifer B. And then the album ends with kind of an interesting, it's like a, almost they call it an extended mix, but it might as well just be a remix of whatever it originally was. It's a very dancey song called 50-50, you know, very club ready. Uh, almost, uh, you know, London House uh, ready. Uh, it's almost a techno track. I like. It's yeah. the only. It's the only song on the album I really, really like. Yeah, it's it's almost like a more drum and bassy thing. You know, like th- think of like the Postal Service from twenty something years ago, and uh, put a little bit more dubstep in it, or a little bit more uh, drum and bass. Put a little more yeah. grit, a little more soul, a little more balls. Well, okay, yeah. Uh, in, in case anybody uh, was wondering, uh, uh, Arturo really does not like Ben Gibbard. Um, but now, so there, there are a lot of things to say about this record. You know, the middle of it gets a little tort songy, um, which shows off her voice and shows off uh, the more sort of like natural instrumentation chops of of these two uh, kids. 
But yeah, the more interesting stuff, it's, it's kind of a sandwich where, you know, the three, three or first three or four songs are great. The last three or four songs are great. The middle of it, not so much, you know, so, so great bread, lousy meat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I, 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 I go a little step further. I think the very, toward the very end, the very last track, 50, 50, that's the one you're talking that that's, that's like a techno yes. stomper. It's a great track. It's one of the best tracks individual songs by anyone this year it's probably not going to be a single but aside from that the rest of this album is caught between a polarity of two things on one side you have add indie pop which is what a lot of young artists musicians are now they try to cram as much into one song as possible killing all the space for the song not allowing the song any air to breathe um, you get that with a lot of contemporary young artists now. They just they, they just cannot settle on one beat, one melody, one rhythm at, at a time. They have to have like multiple chord changes and here and there and put as much in the mix as possible just so I can show off my skills. Like, well, settle down there, Beavis. All right, you know. Yeah, but but, but to be fair, I mean, you know, Black Country New Road, uh, they do it very very loudly. Yeah, and very very obnoxiously. Exactly. Whereas- where she does it kind of quietly and almost like she's going for an operatic suite. Yeah, you but, know? but she's, so, still, she's, still, yeah, she's still doing it nevertheless. And the other yeah. polarity that, that, that this band is caught uh, with on the other side is, like you said, in the middle of the record, you have this three-song streak of really, really dreary, dreadful Disney musical garbage. It's just yeah. so bad. Oh, my what? God. Maudlin strings, overwrought vocals. It's just shitty melodies. Like, good lord, just just stick to the techno stompers. We wanted to give a quick shout out to an amazing music podcast you should definitely check out right after you listen to this episode. The Ringer's Rob Harvilla hosts 60 songs that defined the 90s. That's an audacious, ambitious title, and 75 songs in, the talented and often hilarious Harvilla is painting a rich, detailed, compelling take on that incredible decade. Wait, 75 songs? Yes, 75. Harvilla is 15 songs into the show's second season. Turns out there are 60 more songs that define the 90s. It's a clever concept, but it's one that Harvilla is executing beautifully. And he often makes the journey interactive, asking listeners to choose the song he'll cover in the next episode from a list he offers. And sometimes a write-in candidate wins. Such was the case when Harvilla covered The Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. So we strongly recommend 60 songs that define the 90s. So this is a little bit exciting. We've been wanting to do uh, an episode on the White Stripes uh, for a little while. And as you can tell, there's a personal hook with us that uh, their progression goes with our progression uh, through our mid-20s into our early 30s. And uh, they were really, really exciting at the time because nobody had heard a rock band that was that rock savvy and that rock reverent in a long yeah. time. And they really weren't a throwback. They were kind of anachronistic, but they were pushing things forward. So Arturo, talk to us a little bit about uh, where uh, they done come from and about uh, their their uprising before we get in or their their rise before we get into the albums. Yeah, ah, uh, the story of Jack and Meg. It's yes. quite it's quite possibly the last rock and roll story we will get that has any kind of mythic status. Um, because a lot of other ba- most 
bands that call themselves rock bands out there are kind of boring. <laughs> um, in fact, Meg White, post-White Stripes, has been such an elusive figure that she's actually added to that myth. Um, of course, the way Jack and Meg played with the media during this their time together certainly did not hurt in that regard. So Jack Gillis and Meg White were both from Detroit, and they became high school friends when Jack would frequent the coffee shop Meg worked at. Shortly after high school, their relationship got more serious. Jack got a job as a furniture upholsterer, as you said, for his day job, and playing drums for a band called Goober and the Peas. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The Detroit scene, the bands there had some great names. Uh, By the time Jack and Meg got married in 1996, Jack taking Meg's surname rather than the other way around, Jack was playing guitar in various bands, such as The Henchman, Two Star Tabernacle, and The Go. Now, I'm not sure if it's the same way today, but one thing about the Detroit music scene in the 1990s is that it was very incestual. Uh, It was quite common for musicians to ping pong back and forth from one band to another, often playing in different bands at the same time. Jack White was no stranger to this when he decided to, on a lark, do a duo band project with his wife, Meg, in 1997. Never having picked up an instrument before, she learned drums on the fly, and it led her to possess the the simple meat-and-potatoes style of drumming that she became known for. They named the band The White Stripes. The concept of The White Stripes, both aesthetically and musically, was established from the very beginning. They would play primitive, basic, raw, garage rock steeped heavily in the blues while having the attitude and amplitude of punk rock. Their visual style would be color coordinated in red and white with red representing passion and anger while the white would represent childlike purity and innocence. The overall overriding concept would be the idea of children discovering music for the first time, thereby approaching music making with a fresh wide-eyed, incorruptible innocence. Hence their strategy of marketing themselves not as a husband and wife duo, but as brother and sister. Uh, Around this time, Jack also started to wean himself off the other bands he was involved with, especially The Go, who had just signed with Sub Pop Records, and began focusing on the White Stripes. They impressed Dave Buick, the owner of a tiny independent Detroit label, called Italy Records, who approached Jack at a bar and offered to cover the expenses if the White Stripes would record two singles for him. Uh, The songs that resulted from this were Let's Shake Hands and Lafayette Blues, two scorching, scuzzy slices of garage rock heaven that earned them a bit of a buzz in the Detroit scene. Uh, This word-of-mouth buzz eventually reached Long Gone John, real name John Mervis, the head of the West Coast-based national independent label, Sympathy for the Record Industry. Sympathy closed its proverbial doors back in 2007, but back in the 1990s, Long Gone John had a rather interesting strategy for selling records at the low-rent indie level. Basically, it was to specialize in seven-inch singles with only occasional EPs and full-length albums, occasionally, vastly, mostly singles, And these singles would be cheaply recorded, 
Uh, and he, they would keep, he would cheaply record as many bands as possible, no matter how good or bad they were, and splatter independent record stores throughout the country with sympathy for the record industry's cheap-ass CD singles. Uh, to be honest, most of the bands on Sympathy's roster sucked, but uh, Long Gone John believed in throwing as many darts on the board as possible. Notable bands on his roster included at various times Hole, yes, Courtney Love in Hole, The Gun Club, toward the end of Jeffrey Lee Pierce's life, The Von Bondies, Rocket from the Crypt, Billy Childish, Suicide, Man or Astro Man, and Red Cross. He must have really liked the White Stripes because he allowed them to record a full-length album, albeit on a shoestring budget, and only given a couple of weeks in January 1999. The result was the White Stripes' self-titled debut album. But before we go into that, Chris, anything to say about the origins and the roots of the White Stripes? Uh, yes, I mean you had uh, an interesting point. the The idea of of where that sound and the concept uh, comes from. There's the, uh, you know, there's the sexuality. Not only are you uh, exploring music for the first time, but you're sort of yeah. exploring sexuality, right? And and love uh, for the first time. And and really, what it comes down to is, hey, why did we all start loving rock and roll in the first place? Electric guitar and the beat. And so strip it down to its elements. And this band is, or at least was for their first four records, uh, was the electric guitar and the beat. Yeah. And, you know, they sort of kept it uh, that simple. The uh, the brother and sister thing uh, I thought was funny because you remember he used to introduce them even at the end. He's like, he's like. Yeah, I'm Jack. This is my sister Meg. You know, and he like he had that kind of phony blues man yeah. uh, thing. So uh, they definitely kind of extended the great tradition of put on yeah. in rock and roll. There was a lot of put on and a lot of uh, at least sort of mythic uh, uh, shtick. And then obviously we'll we'll talk about this debut here in a sec. But once they get to their second uh, album, they had figured out the concept mm. uh, beautifully. Uh, in terms of not just the childlike innocence, but also sort of the deconstructive, you know, uh, taking the guitar out of the classic rock and then just putting it front and center. Yeah. Uh, the way that they did. So uh, yeah. good stuff. So yeah. tell us, uh, Arturo, uh, about the next chapter in the history of the White Stripes. Yeah, that debut album, the self-titled album, The White Stripes. It came out in 1999. By the late 1990s, there was a plethora of garage rock revival bands around the country operating in the indie underground, delivering low-down, dirty, scuzzy, fuzzy, uh, lo-fi, snarling rock and roll, most notably Mick Collins and his group The Dirt Bombs, also from Detroit. Yeah, good band. But even among all of them, the White Stripes and their self-titled debut stood out. Their 1960s recalling pop art visual aesthetic and their postmodern conceptual presentation were enough to grab attention, but it wouldn't have mattered if the music wasn't transcendentally great. Uh, they took all the sonic tropes of blues, garage rock, and punk and updated the blend for a new generation and repackaged them in a way that was quite innovative and original. Uh, the Big Three Killed My Baby is a barraging monster of a track that rages against the city's automotive automotive Big Three car manufacturers, 
Ford, Chrysler, General Motors, for outsourcing manufacturing jobs and contributing to Detroit's economic decline. Uh, Screwdriver is amphetamine blues taken to its breaking point. I fought piranhas, simmers with boiling tension and explodes with its course. Even the covers are outstanding with a riveting reinvention of Robert Johnson's Stop Breaking Down, a heavy as fuck version of Bob Dylan's One More Cup of Coffee, and a stomping version of Sunhouse's Canon. For almost any other band, this would be their best album. For the White Stripes, this was only the beginning of what would become a golden run of albums that would get better and better. It was also during uh, the time of this album that the White Stripes got the first of several big breaks in their career. Whether it was fate or fortuitous serendipity, Pavement's touring manager at the time was looking for an opening act during a stretch of shows in the American South that included Georgia and North Carolina. Uh, Flipping through a pile of CDs by a bunch of unknown indie bands, she came across the unique candy-striped album cover of the White Stripes debut album, played it, and fell in love with it so much that she reached out to the band and offered them the opening gig, opening for Pavement, right then and there. At this time in their career, Pavement were in a mellowed-out phase, Uh, and they were touring for their laid-back final album, Terror Twilight. By all accounts, the White Stripes and their brand of white-knuckled rock and roll fury blew them off the stage night in and night out to the point that Pavement themselves felt they had to up their ante and make their set rock out more (laughs) just so they could compete. Uh, The White Stripes success on this mini tour was such that it opened the doors for them to go out on the national touring circuit. Soon after, the hype would start. FYI, I got this story from the, as of now, two-part podcast miniseries published by Jack White's Third Man Records. It's called Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I recommend any of you out there who are White Stripes fans to go check it out. Chris? Yeah, uh, so the first record, uh, very raw, uh, and uh, you can tell it was like uh, they were still kind of figuring out how to record and produce and and all those types of things because, man, the guitar is Godzilla, but, <laughs> but, but sometimes Jack is kind of like down here in the mid, you know, it's like yeah. the... Uh, it's almost like the guitar is swallowing the rest of the track, yeah. and, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's it's kind of funny that the first sounds, but you know, for his, you know, Jack White is treated as a god, and Meg is treated uh, uh, treated as an afterthought. The first sound you hear on the record is an almost like Motownish old school uh, drum break. Yeah, at the beginning of Jimmy the Exploder. So, uh, which is one of the better songs on the record. It's, it's, it's well, it's aptly named too, cause it does explode. And, uh, I think that they showed, uh, what they had and the sort of the, the intellectual power of what they were doing too, I think comes across in the cover of one more cup of coffee, which, you know, on desire, Bob Dylan's desire from 76 yeah. is a very dramatic, uh, very almost cinematic evocative, uh, of Westerns. Uh, you know, you've got uh, Jacques Levy's uh, uh, violin going. You've got harmonies with uh, Emmylou Harris. Mm. It almost sounds like sort of a haunted uh, uh, country song. One one cup of co- more cup of coffee here strips all of it away and gets to the sort of the uh, almost the gallows humor of that song. Yeah, and it it makes it more stark and more. 
uh, what would you call it? Almost macabre, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in a way, I think, you know, Dylan was sort of doing this sort of really sort of dark uh, and sort of, again, sort of gallows humor uh, ballad and maybe getting away with it with like a pretty arrangement. Mm. Uh, whereas Jack takes away and Meg, they take away all the pretty and just leave you with the dire. Yeah. Uh, which, and, and I really like on that. Uh, and so, yeah, I really, really strong, uh, really strong stuff, uh, uh, here. Uh, I've always been a, a big fan of, uh, again, Jimmy, the exploder and the big three killed my baby. Yeah. Uh, th- those songs are just awesome to just kind of feel out. So you had a feeling who knew what was coming next. I mean, they could have just kept, kept doing that. Right. And with a little bit more refinement would have been great, but, uh, but nope, uh, Jack White got more confident and more focused. And uh, as they went along uh, a year and a half later, they came out with something absolutely astonishing. Uh, tell us about that. Arturo. Yeah. Their second album for sympathy for the record industry in 2000 distill uh, was the first of, and distill by the way, it, it's Dutch It's uh, Dutch for the style. Uh, it was the first of three consecutive masterpieces that would place the band in the vanguard of modern rock at the time as, in my opinion, the saviors of rock and roll and make them arguably the band of the decade. For Jack White, it was the album where he would stretch his wings musically as well as stylistically as a songwriter. Folk, country, and even vaudeville pop would enter the White Stripes sonic stew and uh, bolster Jack's lyrical vision. It was really a giant leap forward for him as a venerable songwriter with a classic sensibility that somehow still felt modern and timeless all at once. It was almost their last album. Uh, Shortly after the White Stripes finished recording all the songs for Distill in early 2000, Jack and Meg White divorced. Understandably, Jack thought that was the end of the band, and for what was the band's final book show at a, at a Detroit lounge bar, Jack got a couple of his old music scene buddies to play with him. Surprisingly, on the day of the show, Meg convinced Jack that the White Stripes should continue, and they went on from there. So, yes, Jack and Meg managed to do something most people would find impossible. They not only remained friends after divorcing, but they stayed together as a band. Uh, wow! Don't ask me to ponder how the hell that worked out for them. <laughs> but anyway, if whatever problems Jack and Meg were having at the time bled into the music, it sure as hell resulted in one of the most powerful rock albums of the decade of the noughties. The stop-start dynamic of the single Hello Operator recalls the blues rock bravado of early Led Zeppelin. In uh, one of the rare examples where a cover is better than the original, the White Stripes version of Sunhouse's Death Letter, Death Letter Blues, as House's version is called, is one of the most exhilarating performances of electric blues in the 21st century. And over the years, it became a White Stripes standard. Uh, Let's Build a Home roars with a ferocity that few bands could match, not even now. Um, as noted earlier, Jack's growth as a songwriter and song stylist supreme is evident with the endearing pop perfection of Apple Blossom and I'm Bound to Pack It Up, which lifts the acoustic riff and chord progression from the Marshall Tucker Band's Can't You See <laughs> and reinvents it all as a beautiful folk blues lament. 
Um, the second major break for the White Stripes as a touring act came this year also, also when they opened for Slater Kinney during uh, Slater Kinney's Fall 2000 tour. Uh, around this time, Slater Kinney were the premier American indie rock band, and opening for them built on the minor buzz from the previous year, and with music critics' antenna lifted, that minor buzz became a major buzz as the White Stripes started to become the most talked about underground band in the country. Can you imagine being in the audience in 2000, seeing Slater Kinney at the peak of their powers, and right before them, seeing a young, explosive White Stripes? Yowza. Oh, that, that must have just been an unbelievable show. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's just like, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, dude, I can't even imagine, like, I, I would, like, gladly get back in the DeLorean and <laughs> hit 88 and just go see that, because that must yeah. have just been a dream show. Yeah, like, White imagine, Stripes at their peak, Slater Kinney at their peak. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah. I love this style. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing that you didn't uh, talk about, uh, and that I think is important for us to talk about, is the steel. Uh, it's, uh, a, the steel really, it was a Dutch artistic movement, uh, that started in the 1910s and extended into the 1930s. And it was, a it was built on the notion of, uh, abstraction, the idea. And so you could only, the ideas they reduced or they only allowed these painters, the ideas we're rejecting this sort of, uh, you know, sort of richness and sort of, uh, over wrought uh, art mm. and we're only allowed to use uh, uh, black and white and primary colors and uh, shapes and so mm. lots of triangles and rectangles and and all of that but it's just it was this very it was a minimalist artistic movement mm. and so uh, they were making that connection between that artistic movement and their shtick mm. which you know obviously the red and the white and the black and uh, the just sort of very simple, uh, you know, essentially, if you think about it, they were playing with the primary colors of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's pretty clear. And so there's just a lot of really uh, great stuff. And I think like the fullest song on it, you know, in terms of the most kind of that has the most underneath is probably you're pretty good looking. Yeah. Uh, the album opener, but the rest of it, like you said, hello operator and I'm bound to pack it up and some of the stuff, you know, jumble, jumble, you know, it's a lot of it is, it's, it's kind of like this jumping, uh, you know, really spare, just sort of Jack, uh, getting all the space in the world to just like, just ax man it and just crank. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's, it's this joyful noise, but also just that has this sort of spitting uh, mm. fire of, of lead work. And again, it's taut. It's very mixed around the blues and they're really, it's meditative uh, after a while because again, it's just beat and guitar and it just it draws you in Yeah, and it's just an album to bop to. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just think, again, I just think it's an extraordinary uh, record. I mean, I, th- I love the, the fact that they, they end it with uh, with Blind Willie McTell. Yeah, your stuff, <laughs> and, you know, in his mind, a song about domestic abuse. <laughs> yeah, but but with acoustic, uh, kind of acousticy, kind yeah. of uh, almost um, uh, Mississippi Delta instrumentation, which is you know separate from the rest of the record. So it's almost kind of like a, almost like a wink wink uh, mm. kind of joke to end it. Uh, one thing I will say 
is I personally think the best song on this album is Apple Blossom, mm. uh, which is just this beautiful kind of throwback, yeah. uh, almost, uh, I don't know if it's country, but it's almost like a folk song. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah which uh, Quentin Tarantino picked up that in the non-pulp fiction division of his discography, the best use of popular music in any of his movies is when he uses Apple Blossom yeah. at near the beginning of The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Which is, you know, you have this sort of, you know, lyrics about adoring uh, a woman and wanting to, you know, be come to her rescue and be there for her. Mm. Well, meanwhile, the only female character in uh, the movie turns out to be the bad guy played by Jennifer Jason Lee, but she spends like what, two and a half hours basically getting beaten up and abused physically and, and, and verbally. <laughs> right. So it, so in a way, one, it's perfect for the scene because you're in, you know, 1880s, uh, snowy Wyoming. Uh, and so it's kind of a perfect aesthetic, but the, the lyrics, there's almost like kind of a dark, cruel joke uh, yeah. to it yeah. as well. So, but like I said, I, you can't really objectively call it their best record uh, because of, you know, it's not, uh, I think the accomplishment of a couple of the records that came after this are more impressive in terms of the technical stuff that they yeah. were able to pull off. Right. Uh, but this record as a statement, uh, as a concept, as an exercise, and as a, really a discipline, that's what it is, is it's like they came up with a very simple and very narrow path, like basically just, you know, the, the still, uh, movement in, in rock and roll and they stuck to it and they pulled it off again, yeah. Jimmy page without the other three guys. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. a rich eclecticism to this record too, stylistically. Sure. That's what impresses me most about it. You know, it's not all, yeah. you know, you know, you know, bare bone, scuzzy, fuzzy rock, you know, it's, there's a lot to yeah. it too. There's a lot of, a lot of textures on this record as well. Yeah. I mean, again, and it's kind of like you, and West End, it, that was a good point or because it's not like all whole lot of love. It's like whole lot of love followed by like Bronyar stomp followed by like cashmere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It has that kind of uh, sweep to it. So I, I like that idea. Jimmy page with either you or me on drums. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's it. It's, 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 yeah, it's Jimmy page. Oh, what the hell? Get a metronome. Uh, you know, you don't even need a human being. It's yeah, yeah really. It's just, and that's what kind of makes it extraordinary. And, uh, uh, one of my favorite records of the era, uh, for sure. Yeah. And remember, uh, they, they were supporting as far as I know that show that we've talked about in the opening, they didn't play anything from the old record, from what I, uh, from the next record, from the next right. record that we're going to talk about. Yeah. From what I remember, it was mostly stuff from the steel, which they were supporting. And they did a, a really great cover of Jolene by Dolly Parton. Right. Yeah. Well, they're uh, known they, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's the same thing as, uh, one more cup of coffee, which is to take the, uh, which is to take the dark humor out of the mix and just really like kind of play up the darkness. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, speaking of exceptional, the next album is White Blood Cells from 2001. Now, one of the marks of historically great rock bands is that they have counterparts. If not arch enemies, then doppelgangers, if you will. The Yangs to their Yings, you know? The Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. The Sex Pistols, The Clash. U2, R.E.M. Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Oasis, Blur. The White Stripes certainly had theirs, and that band was The Strokes. By early 2001, the music media hype surrounding The White Stripes was hitting a fever pitch, and it perfectly coincided time-wise 
with the music media hype enveloping The Strokes, a scruffy, gritty New York City band riding high off the critical success of their their gnarly, rockin' debut EP, The Modern Age. Whereas The White Stripes' brand of garage rock was deeply steeped in classic blues, 1960s garage rock and punk attitude, The Strokes shared only the punk attitude. Uh, Musically, The Strokes came from a more 1970s CBGB's New York art punk sensibility mixed with a little 1990s lo-fi indie rock a la Guided by Voices. Either way, both of these bands blowing up at the same time was a stark contrast to what was popular in rock at the time, which was stuck between a polarity of mostly terrible new metal, corn, limp biscuit, stained, etc., and progressive art rock, you know, Radiohead, The Flaming Lips, etc. It was refreshing as hell, and it harkened back to exactly 10 years prior when Nirvana was shifting the rock landscape. It was in this historical context that the White Stripes unveiled their third album, their second consecutive masterpiece, and their commercial breakthrough album, White Blood Cells. Whereas the previous album, Distill, reveled in a stylistic variety that augmented their patented scuzz and noise, White Blood Cells was a monolithic sledgehammer directly aiming for both your head and your crotch. It was the closest Jack and Meg would ever get to heavy metal. Uh, the following year, after the White Stripes sound to, signed to V2 Records, a subsidiary of major label Virgin, the album was re-released and Fell in Love with a Girl was their breakthrough single on rock radio. The kinetic, feverish, 100-mile-an-hour adrenaline rush of the song was a thrill to hear on radio at the time, and it's amazing the song wasn't a bigger hit. Uh, The opening track, Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground, is one of rock's greatest opening songs with its pummeling sludge assault. Uh, The stylistic eclecticism that Jack White showed in his songwriting on the previous album hadn't gone away, though, and it was uh, showcased by the rollicking country jaunt of a Hotel Yorba and the gorgeous folk ballad, We're Going to Be Friends. Surprising influences also pop up in the album, where one can hear the raw power and savage emotion of early PJ Harvey on tracks like Expecting and The Union Forever. Uh, I Can't Wait has a strutting chorus reminiscent of mid-1970s Queen, and the instrumental Aluminum is straight-up sludge metal. Uh, It's a riveting album from start to finish, and when Rolling Stone magazine placed the album at number 497 in their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time back in 2012, they were actually underselling it. It's also important to note that during the White Blood Cells period, their third huge big break came in the form of John Peel and his BBC radio show. When the album came out in the summer of 01, Peel constantly played tracks from the album and from the first two White Stripes albums, opening the door to their ensuing massive popularity in the UK and Europe. Chris? Yeah, and they did a lot of touring over there. Yeah, uh, yeah very prolific. Uh, so Jack White, uh, if you read interviews uh, with him, is a pretty self-conscious, restless guy. Yeah. And he's, he's not one of these guys who's content to find the formula and keep knocking it out of the park or just to keep, you know, oh, 
oh, this made me, so I'm going to reinvent it and reinvent it and reinvent it. Right. Uh, no, I think that, you know, he, I think he understood that to steal as a, again, a, as a conceptual feat, uh, there was a cleverness to it and all that, but that's what kind of got them their appeal and their buzz. And so now he's like, okay, uh, they're expecting us to do that again. I don't really want to do that again. I don't want to get pigeonholed as sort of this blues, you know, this deconstructive blues rock act. Yeah. And so, and then I've read interviews where he says this, where it, it just, that's where this desire to crank it up and to explore uh, different contours comes from. And so that is where the noise and the fury and uh, even more the, the more gentle stuff. He wanted to make a pop record with white blood cells, essentially, like just like a straightforward yeah. uh, like rock record where it kind of has those uh, sort of way over the top kind of like bash outs mm-hmm. and then these like kind of softer songs. And then with a couple of sticky songs mixed in, uh, you mentioned uh, Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground and Hotel Yorba. Well, yeah. the album starts... There certainly was not, and you made this point, there certainly was not another band or another album in 2001 that started anywhere close to that riff. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that when I first heard that, I was like, whoa, you know, it, yeah. it, it's one of those, you know, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but what's coming to mind is like, you know, smells like teen spirit or, uh, or, uh, you know, the beginning, you know, let, let me drown from yeah. uh, super unknown. It's like right. this 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 riff that immediately hits you in the mush and kind of yeah. like like whoa you know kind of yeah. jaw dropping but then hotel yorba follows that yeah. <laughs> and it's like and it's like this one two three four you know just this this like yeah. which by the way was uh i saw them at coachella in 2003 and they played that live that was a fun live song because yeah. because uh, like meg you know, God bless her heart. She could barely keep up with that beat. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could, well, it was 105 degrees out there. You, so you could tell she's dying while yeah. she's trying to play that. But uh, yeah, there's, there's some other uh, stuff on there. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, I've always been a f- huge fan of the union forever because yeah. it does, it does have this kind of like, like 1970, 71 kind of throwback of mm-hmm. like, you know, think about like the, uh, you know, the sort of the cocky drugged out front man thing of mm. like, I don't know, Iggy pop or Jim Morrison mm. or this sort of, you know, uh, almost like shouty, like over dramatic thing. Mm. And then you get that little uh, spoken word thing in the middle with just the, the, the taps of the drums. You're quoting uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, quoting Citizen Kane. And so there's a pretension to it, but it's so charming in the middle of that whole thing. You know, yeah. it's, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this record. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the production, uh, from here, uh, white is sort of, cause again, he's kind of a, I, I don't know if he's Asperger's or something, but he's like one of these guys that when he gets focused on something really focuses. And so he's starting to get clever yeah. with the, uh, with his production techniques, which you know, obviously that manifests itself most strongly on the next two records after this, right. In terms of how we recorded them. But yeah, this one just blasts out of the fucking speakers. So like you said, this is just a moonshot yeah. and, uh, they deserved uh, their props because again, I think now that I think about it, if they had come around 10 years earlier, yeah, you know, they might not have been as well perceived mm-hmm. because uh, there were a whole lot of bands that were, you know, okay. Either they would have just been uh, like a bandwagon signing and yeah. would have gotten a couple of hits. And that's all we remember. Uh, but they came out in the right time because like you said, you had new metal on the one end uh, you had sort of um, almost like crappy, like gangsta 
rap on the other, you know, like the yeah. kind of the, the post, you know, corrupt and, you know, the, all that mm. kind of the master P kind of shit. Mm. And so they were the only thing guys that were doing anything like, like remotely interesting rock balls ish yeah. at the time. So, yeah. uh, so good stuff. On this episode, Chris and I broke down the greatness of the music and legacy of the White Stripes. For the next episode, we're going to provide an end-of-year treat. The best albums of 2022. No Parallel Universe segment this time, folks. Yours truly curmudgeons are staying in the real world this time, and each of us will give our picks for the top 10, or even top 20, albums of this year, while we give each other feedback on our picks. There will be some agreement, but there will also be some serious disagreement, especially with a few of Chris's picks. Good God almighty. If anything, we hope this episode will encourage you all out there to listen to some of the actual good music that came out this year, instead of the corporate pop mediocrity referred to you by the likes of Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, or Spin. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you the best albums of 2022. Speaking of speaking of rock and rock balls ish, <laughs> uh, yep. when the White Stripes released Elephant on April Fool's Day 2003, the anticipation leading up to it matched what Radiohead had for Kid A in 2000 and what Nirvana and Pearl Jam had just a decade before for their follow-ups to their classic breakthrough albums. Now, did the White Stripes live up to the hype? A resounding hell yes. Elephant stands as the White Stripes' third consecutive masterpiece and is generally regarded as their greatest album. It's also their most, their most commercially successful album, spawning the blockbuster international hit single, Seven Nation Army, uh, Jack White's signature song, and to this day, a pop music standard that has endured for multiple generations of rock music fans. Seriously, if you don't know the song by that thumping bass line, dun, 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 dun. if you don't know that, you've been living under a rock for the last 19 years. Right. And, and you probably will never come anywhere close to listening to this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's a flawless, beautifully flowing record that takes all the musical and songwriting strides the band had made with their previous albums and coalesces them into a perfect rock and roll whole. Um, other great tracks, the hardest button to button with its stop start dynamic grooves and struts with a menace and the confidence of a band hitting their absolute peak. Uh, I'm no fan of Burt Bacharach, but the White Stripes passionate version of I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself ranks as one of the greatest cover versions that anyone has ever done and blows away the original. Uh, black math merges speedy punk, almost hardcore punk, with a Black Sabbath-style bridge. Songs like The Air Near My Fingers and the gorgeous I Want to Be the Boy Who Warms Your Mother's Heart epitomize Jack White's gift for incorporating electric keyboards into the mix with his patented fuzz guitars without watering down the music at all. Overall, this is the album that saw the White Stripes vault past the strokes 
and every other band for that matter, in the garage rock revival sweepstakes and establish them as the definitive rock band of the the noughties, at least, the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. One thing about the enduring timelessness of Seven Nation Army, several years ago in an interview, Jack was asked about uh, how he felt about the song being played in sports stadiums throughout the world with people singing along to that immortal bass line. Not too surprisingly, Jack enthused that it was the ultimate compliment, claiming that the song's status as a sports stadium anthem is, quote, what makes it folk music. Now, when Jack said folk music, he didn't mean hairy guys playing acoustic guitars. Right. He meant folk music in the sense of music of the people. Music yeah, a common that, experience. Exactly. Yeah. Music that is so ingrained in social consciousness that it never goes away. Well, Elephant, as an all-time classic rock album, will never go away, and neither will the White Stripe status as arguably the best rock band of the 21st century. Chris? Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, I've always thought that the neatest thing about both Seven Nation Army and the hardest button to button is that's not bass. Yeah, it's a guitar. <laughs> I yeah, think it's a, I think it's a baritone guitar that he's playing. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's baritone guitar at the end. It, it kind of like mirrors a bass, but it's yeah. but it's all uh, sort of guitar. Uh, you know, kind of he's a. At that point, he's a guitar maestro, and so it's kind of guitar maestro, like technical stuff. Yeah. Uh, I said before that that he gets to the point where he's really, really innovative. So now this record is recorded on an analog eight track mm. uh, recording setup, but he's still using all of his modern day, uh, you know, pedals and add-ons and you know, while, you know, whatever the uh, sort of the modern guitar setup is. And so it's almost like digital effects being recorded by like a 40 year old eight track right. uh, <laughs> console. And so that's where you kind of get this, uh, like, it, it sounds like uh, it was made in the vinyl era. It sounds like the kind of album that would have been like literally cut up on the floor. Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it ain't no pro tools going on yeah. uh, uh, with this record. Yeah. And actually back then everybody liked to pick on pro tools. Remember when we defended uh, saying anger, that was the problem everybody had, which is yeah. bullshit because pro tools is supposed to be able to make you do like shtick you can't do. Yeah. And it's supposed to help you invent. But anyway, I digress. Uh, this album is fantastic. Uh, I love the hardest button to button, uh, the most surrealist take on domestic life mm-hmm, uh, yeah. imaginable. Yeah. I also, you know, and again, there was a certain amount of shtick mm-hmm. and I, I, with their cover choices, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and some of it, again, it's that deconstructive thing or finding the pain uh, in this. But I think that the, uh, the idea of covering, I just don't know what to do with myself is like rescuing it from the, from all the lacquer and the schmaltz yeah. of, uh, what was it? I think Dion Warwick did a version of it, but basically Burt Bacharach doing Burt Bacharach. And so, yeah. you know, having a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, some uh, rockabilly style strumming on the chorus or right. on the verses yeah. is, is kind of a clever, almost pretty good musical, like pop music vocabulary joke. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like doing that to a Burt Bacharach song. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, obviously seven nation army is immortal. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you ask mainstream critics and you said, what's the best single of the decade or of the two thousands, yeah, the, the best rock song, 
Yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, but in the entire 2000s, yeah. uh, they would probably pick Seven Nation Army. Not Maybe not the best song overall. Mm. Uh, there's a few others, you know, like All Right by Kendrick Lamar and uh, Formation by Beyonce and a couple of Kanye tracks or He Who Shall Not Be Named anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and then obviously there's a couple of uh, Wilco songs, et cetera. You know, you, there's there's a few that you can come up with or like, you know, Kelly Clarkson since you would have been gone. But rock songs, it would be Seven Nation Army. And it is extraordinary that that uh, I'm looking at Spotify right now. Yeah. Uh, here's the number of streams uh, to date of Seven Nation Army. One billion, one hundred eighty nine million, two sixty nine, five forty two. Jeez. So 1.2 billion plays on Spotify for a rock song released after 2000. Uh, that don't happen too much, yeah. uh, if at all. But, you know, I said, that's just a neat song. It's like one of the more creative riffs mm. of all time and like unforgettable. I mean, there's a reason why they would take that into sports stadiums because it really does kind of sound like war horse shit, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? Totally. Yeah. It, it, it's a little marching, marching on your horse. You know, getting ready for battle. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah and, and and honestly, I think you said it, it, it almost has a t- Tony Iommi kind of feel to it. Yeah. You know, with that part of bottom heavy kind of angular uh, uh, riff uh, going on uh, to it. So uh, I'm also a big fan of Ball and Biscuit. Mm. Uh, yeah, that, know, that, that, that's, that's one of the best pure blues songs the Stripes ever did. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, certainly of the ones he wrote. Uh, like that and Hello Operator are probably yeah. the two best, uh, but they hadn't really done that. I mean, remember they took the album, uh, they took the uh, White Blood Cells off uh, mm-hmm. from that. So to hear it come back like that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, then you you, you kind of get the, you know, like White kind of had this alternate persona of like, like maybe he thought he was, he had like the worst fake Southern accent or the way, you know, the, the worst yeah. fake kind of te- Texas troubadour accent yeah. ever. I remember he tried to do that on stage. And so maybe like, girl, you have no faith in medicine is like yeah. the embodiment of that persona. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, like I said, uh, just a really fun record, really well engineered, uh, incredibly well played. And the songwriting is top notch, especially the hardest button to button. I and mean, mm-hmm. that song is extraordinary. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so in my opinion, I think it's the best song they ever wrote. All right. Their next album from 2005, Get Behind Me, Satan. Very, and- very underrated. Well, uh, I was going to say, and here we get the White Stripes first folly. (laughs) Listen, I get it. After climbing to the top of the mountain with a certain formula, I understand an artist's desire to do something different and experiment. In fact, we should all encourage it. Just don't expect the end result to always be good. Uh, In fact, this reflects one of this podcast's curmudgeonly tenets. Just because something is new or different or unique doesn't mean it's automatically good. Uh, right. In the case of the White Stripes and their fifth album, Get Behind Me, Satan, the end result is definitely mixed. Uh, acoustic guitars, pianos, and exotic instruments like the marimba dominate the musical arrangements on this album. And it would have been great if Jack White's songwriting were a little more consistently solid. Uh, passive manipulation and take, take, take are attempts at folk rock and lyrically try to explore the nuances of codependent relationships, but are just awkward and clumsy in their construction and their forgettable vocal melodies. The Nurse is a misguided attempt at noisy art pop and proof that marimbas should be kept to a minimum in rock settings. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. 
<laughs> Yet this is a White Stripes album, so it's impossible for it to be a total stinker. Blue Orchid rocks furiously with a sleek, processed in a good way buzzsaw guitar. The piano stompers, my doorbell, and the and the denial twist are the closest the White Stripes ever got to 1960s style R and B and soul. Little Ghost showed what was, at the time, the duo's increasing ease and comfort with Appalachian folk music. And I'm Lonely, But I Ain't That Lonely Yet is a wry, clever country ballad. Overall, it's an album that has some great songs, but is far from a great album. Chris? Yeah, the, the reason I said that this album is underrated uh, is some of the stuff that you, know, that you had said that I think that what it was is that at that point, remember, they had become huge. Yeah. And there was this expectation of, okay, you know, we want you to come and bash out and be like the guitarist in the in the cage on stage. And, you know, we take you around the country like King Kong. Mm. Uh, I think that White was a little burned out on that. And so I think that the idea of let's stick to the White Stripes concept of the sort of the childlike innocence or mm. the or the, you know, the the deconstructive, you mm-hmm. know, pull out of the beat and and basically the the riff or whatever and to do it with acoustic guitar and piano and to delve into folkier more sort of you know ditty territory almost like countryish ditty uh territory with you know i'm a big fan of my doorbell uh Mm. i think that's a that's a really cool song uh the fact that you have a white stripes album that really what is it basically like only two songs on the whole thing Mm -hmm. that have that traditional bash out i think i think it's like what instinct blues and red rain and the rest of it is uh off there uh i'm a big fan of uh there's some really great sort of lament like dirge ballads on this thing you know for forever for her is over for me Mm -hmm. uh is a really terrific kind of somber almost breakup song and i'm also a big fan of as ugly as i seem uh, and also, like you said, uh, I'm lonely, but I ain't that lonely. Yeah. Uh, that has that verse on it about, uh, about his sister, which yeah. makes me think that that's a thinly veiled, uh, reference to his divorce from Meg. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what it makes me think. But like you said, just the fact that they were able to kind of, uh, replace the electric guitar bombast with guitars and, and little, you know, with, well, with acoustic guitars and piano and mm. again, Marimba, uh, yeah, you should probably, that should be kept to a minimum. But the fact that even they, you know, they pulled back on some of the big drums and replaced it with like uh, tambourines and mm-hmm. uh, and maracas and, and stuff like that. Just the fact that they changed things up, but were still kind of true to themselves, I think yeah. is impressive. The next album is the sixth and final White Stripes album, Icky Thump from 2007, their first and only album for Warner Brothers after the V2 label was consolidated after the Virgin Company was purchased. And it was their highest charting album in the US going to number two on the Billboard chart. This album sees the White Stripes pulling off the neat trick of looking backward. The scorching blues rock numbers, Catch Hell Blues and Bone Broke, are outtakes from their debut album, and also looking forward with some of their most experimental sounds. Unlike the previous album, Get Behind Me Satan, most of the sonic adventurousness on Icky Thump, I think, works. Uh, Prickly Thorn But Sweetly Worn is an inspired take on revved up Scottish folk music, 
with a droning bagpipe to boot, uh, but it then sails into exotic weirdness when the track segues into St. Andrew. This battle is in the air, a 4-4 rhythm stomp with backwards tape loops, the bagpipe turning over dissonant chords, and Meg White's spoken word vocals. It's one of the strangest and oddly most exciting moments on any uh, White Stripes record. Of course, the best track on the album is the title track, which also happened to be one of the band's biggest hit singles, Icky Thump, reaching the top 30 of the Billboard singles chart and as high as number two in the UK. It's also one of the strangest songs to ever be a big rock radio hit uh, with this haunting menacing bass drum driven rhythm jack white employs a clavioline which is an old electronic keyboard instrument that was the precursor to the synthesizer and he uses it to riveting effect as its melody lines swirl all over the song until it hits the chorus with a heavy hairy hard rock riff straight out of the 1970s it's akin to led zeppelin trying to cover the beatles baby you're a rich man it's also the most political song the White Stripes ever did. Oh, by with, far. With Jack yeah. excoriating right-wing immigration policies and xenophobia with the sneering lines, white Americans, what? Nothing better to do? Why don't you kick yourself out? You're an immigrant too. Um, not all the experiments work. Conquests with its obnoxious vocal melody and clumsy song structure is proof that unless you're Calexico, you should never mix mariachi trumpets with rock. Um, yeah. <laughs> ra- Rag and Bone is just silly and goofy with its narrative about picking up random things at a junkyard. But it ends on a great note with songs such as the epic organ rocker, I'm Slowly Turning Into You, and with what is usually a White Stripes album, or was usually a White Stripes album closing tradition, catchy sing-along folk with effect and cause. It's an album that saw the White Stripes creatively back on the right track until midway through their fall North American tour in 07, they canceled all remaining tour dates due to Meg White reportedly suffering from acute anxiety. Uh, the band went on hiatus with Jack recording and playing with his side bands, the Rackin' Tours and the Dead Weather, before the duo reconvened in 2009 to write and record new material. Unfortunately, the magic the magic didn't seem to be there anymore between Jack and Meg as the sessions ended soon and after they started. And two years later, in 2011, Jack and Meg White announced that the White Stripes had officially, yet amicably, broken up. Chris? Yeah, it, I mean, it's unfortunate what happened to Meg. I mean, this the idea of having to, you know, be the number two in a band where people perceived it as this genius and this dope yeah. and not getting the respect for some of the contributions, you know, like some of the vocal stuff that she did. And yeah. uh, from what I read, she had veto power, uh, mm. you know, that she had influence the idea of like, you know, we don't want, I don't want this song on this record because I don't like this lyric. And so like yeah. two albums later it shows up that yeah. those kinds of things. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't just uh, a, va- a Jack white vanity project to torture his ex-wife, yeah. um, <laughs> you know? And so there's that. Um, yeah, this album's kind of neat in the sense that, yeah, you're right. I do kind of admire the fact that he's going for some Western, like Southwestern and Mexican uh, rhythms yeah. and some almost like uh, like like movie Western kind of stuff. Mm. But uh, but yeah, you know, like you said, the mariachi uh, 
trumpets are a little bit much. Uh, I will say this, um, and you alluded to this, is they kind of loop back around. The, the kind of the neat thing about the the journey through these six albums and their discography is with Catch Hell Blues and Effect and Cause, they end where they started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Effect and Cause is, 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 again, I mean, well, Catch Hell Blues and Effect and Cause, they're back to uh, uh, paying tribute to Led Zeppelin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and effect and cause is interesting because it's like the first hint of Robert Plant influence. Yeah, uh, in in that Zeppelin mix too, because sure. uh, before it was just let's take the Jimmy Page and fuck the other three guys. Now it's like all of a sudden it's uh, Jack White doing kind of doing an impression of Robert Plant. Yeah, uh, which J- Jack which White's gone. He's gone on record saying that uh, uh, he doesn't trust anyone who doesn't like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't trust anybody that doesn't like uh, that doesn't like Led Zeppelin either. Yeah. Uh, you know that or the Beatles. I mean, yeah. people that say, "Eh, I don't really like the Beatles." I'm like, get the fuck out. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, interesting. I want this. I guess this is a good place to share a quote that I, uh, Jack White did an interview with uh, Vulture uh, in earlier in 22 to promote the the two records uh, mm. that he just came out with. One of which, by the way, is awesome. Uh, was it Fear of the Dawn? I think it's called See, that album. I think it sounds good. Uh, the single from that album is fantastic. It's the best song he's done in years. But I said, what brings that album down for me, even though it has the bombast, I, I, just, I just don't think his songwriting is consistently good anymore. It's just not good well, anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's not consistent, but like it, it consistently rocks balls. I mean, it's 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 like the most rocking sounding record I heard this year. I mean, it jumps yeah. out of the speakers. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, yeah, sonically, yeah. sonically, it sounds great. I just don't think the songs are there for the most part. Yeah. And it just kind of shows, you know, like Jack White, uh, just kind of how strange and eccentric he is that like, he'll say things and then you're like, but wait a second. And here's one of those quotes where he says, uh, quote, I want songs to live in a bigger universe and you can take them to different directions and you can drag something out and you can slow them down and you can speed them up. Uh, Then they've got some life to them that they can live in for a long time. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess maybe in the original design, that's kind of a concept for him to write songs, but I mean, let's face it, dude, is he ever going to do like, like a bash out, like, like, like speed metal version of seven, seven nation army. <laughs> I mean, is he ever going to do like a John Lee hooker, like real slow stomping blues yeah. version of seven nation army? Yeah. No, he's going to do seven nation army. <laughs> right, right. And, and he also, in the same interview, he laments, and I feel sorry for the people that have big hit singles that they have to play the same way over and over and over and over again. I'm mm-hmm. like, but that's kind of what you ended up having to do. Right, dude. Yeah, exactly. You know? Here's yeah, the yeah. thing. Like, yeah, after yeah. the white stripes, like I'm not a big fan of po- the, any of the music Jack White has done post white mm-hmm. stripes. Like the rack and yeah. tours of one pretty good album. The 2008 yeah. record, Consolers for the Lonely. That album yeah. rocks. I like that. And the songwriting is good. It's the last yeah. album that Jack White was a part of where the songwriting was solid and consistent. The Dead Weather are pretty terrible. Yeah, um, yeah they're, they're bad. They're really bad. And I and to me, his solo, his stuff under the under the Jack White moniker is just really underwhelming. Um, really just not that good. Yeah, I, I, I respect that he's experimenting with sounds and styles and, you know, uh, he went to, like, into an electro quasi hip hop direction with that album he did in 2018. Okay. I mean, I respect, you know, the, the willingness to try new things, but like I said, don't expect it to be all good. And in Jack White's case, most of it post stripes is not that good. Here's the thing. Post white stripes, do you know what Jack White's biggest contribution to the music industry is? What's that? 
his record label, Third Man yeah. Records. Um, well, yeah, and he produced a Loretta Lynn record. He produced that was in 2004. But Third yep. Man Records um, was really a big part of the vinyl record revival of the 20s. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So post White Stripes. That is Jack White's his second biggest legacy is that is his his record label and how it contributed to the vinyl revival in, in the teens, the 2010s. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of a charming label and they do some things. I mean, the, the most uh, striking thing is, you know, he has a little studio in Nashville mm. and he has one of those old school booths where you yeah. could like uh, rec- like basically make your own acetate. Yep. Where, yep. you know, you just kind of do that. And Neil Young recorded an entire album using that booth. <laughs> but but he was doing covers of like 70s soft rock things like Gordon Lightfoot songs. And yeah. or like, I think he did a cover like, you know, This Land is Your uh, or This Land is Your Land. Yeah. And stuff like that. But he did it all in that acetate booth. Right. Which is kind of funny. Now, uh, Jack White's, like you said, Jack White's post uh, uh, White Stripes journey is interesting. Uh, I, I I actually like the Raconteurs because I'm a big Brendan Benson fan. Uh, I think that guy is one of the better pop songwriters on the planet, uh, or at least was back then. Hmm. Uh, so I give him a pass uh, for that. I mean, it wasn't necessarily his comfort zone, but I thought that he did some good contributions for there. But wouldn't you know it, the best stuff in his uh, solo catalog is the stuff that most evokes the White Stripes. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the cover of I'm Shaken. Yeah, uh, which I know when I lived in White Plains, New York, the the rock station there, which is one of the best in the world, uh, WXPK, the Peak. Uh, Got to give a shout out to the Peak. Uh, they still think the Smithereens and Squeeze are like uh, in the top ten. Uh, <laughs> yeah, great station. But they used to play "I'm Shaking" all the time, and uh, that that was great. Uh, and that was you know that was really uh, a clever uh, take on that. But he's but he's again he's. Yeah, you know, credit him for it's that same restless spirit. I mean, he'll never do the same thing twice, right? And he and he does have that self consciousness, and like the these rec- like this year where he did the two records thing that some people do, where he did the loud record and the soft record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The soft the soft record's got better songs on it, but it's more sort of meh. You know, it's uh, it's, it's middle middle aged man folk rock. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's middle aged man. I'm well, happily married father rock yeah yeah and it, yeah like middle like swaying it's like uh almost like aor rock from the you know aor rock soft rock from the cities or AO, hey. what am i trying to say a- aor rock like gordon lightfoot james taylor kind of stuff from the 70s he's, he's on his uh, third wife now isn't he uh yes he is he's he's he uh hopefully he gets off her um <laughs> no he's yeah exactly he's been married three times now uh and he uh I, I, there's a contentment there, but I think that the, the fact that he goes from like kind of a bash out, uh, unsettled record to a, uh, domestic, uh, domesticated, um, more sort of soft ballad records kind of shows you that he's, he'll never stop, uh, trying to, you know, he'll never stop throwing darts at the dartboard. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, he's not afraid to hit or miss now, granted, you know, as he gets older and as he gets happier, uh, there's a lot more missed than there used to be, which is the yeah. whole point of this episode that those yeah. six albums that we just uh, yeah. described, I mean, the worst of them is arguably uh, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. But which is to me, a great record. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, I would say that that's a three and a half to four star record. That's got some really compelling stuff on it. And mm. so if your worst record is a four star record, uh, that's a pretty good run. 
Yeah. So speaking on that, so we're going to end it on this. We we talked. We've talked a bit about you know post white stripes, uh, Jack yep. White. So the name of this episode is the White Stripes: A Legacy. Chris, yeah. why why do they have the legacy? What is the legacy? What is the legacy of the White Stripes? I would say the the basically they are the last of their kind. Yeah, uh, in the sense of that they were a uh, a reverent blues folk and country rock uh, garage type of band that had a prominent place on radio could, you know, could play festivals that had reverence, uh, that had a, a goofy lead singer who could like, you know, date actresses like Renee Zellweger, uh, that, you know, that had a mythos to them that people cared about. And the fact that they did have, uh, a pristine riff that shows up in football stadiums all over the country. Yeah. I think they're the they're the last of their breed. Yeah, so I think be. I think that's their legacy. Yeah. One, the fact that they were so intelligent about you know like taking rock to the to roots of its the essence of its roots and their deconstruction experiments. The idea of uh, little kids doing their bright eyed take on rock and roll. And uh, being sweet on one end and sour on the other, but never dishonest. You know, right. Never. Yeah. The idea. And so you strip away all the bullshit and find uh, the essence of what you're trying to say, uh, bash out. Um, and I think that's their legacy, that they were the last of those bands. There was a lineage of bands like that yeah. that had that stomp to them and uh, what has there been since? I mean, I guess you could make an argument for Ty Siegel in some of his stuff. But Ty, Siegel, make- Ty Siegel's nowhere near mainstream. OC's no. nowhere near mainstream. The Kurt only Vile. one you can say, Kurt Vile, nowhere near nowhere mainstream. mainstream. Right. However, the Black Keys, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, the Black Keys, I mean, they broke out with Rubber Factory, which is what? That's the same year as uh, Elephant, isn't it? No, or Elephant right around the same Elephant is 03, Rubber Factory is 04. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, they both came out when I was in Phoenix. So that's why yeah. I kind of make the association. But they were right around the same time. Uh, and so, and that's when there was a movement. Remember, the Hives were 02, and yeah. uh, you had some of that garage rock. And so that, the Keys kept it going. Uh, you know, the Keys kind of break out in 04. At that point, you know, the White Stripes were four years into their ride. Uh, you know, by the time the keys get to like 2009, 2010, they're making records with Danger Mouse and and getting licensed up the, the wazoo, you know, gold on the ceiling and 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 stuff like that. And so, yeah, that might be uh, the outer edge uh, of it with the black keys. But basically, the stripes are the, the last one to do it really, really, really well mm. in a mainstream. They, they had the warm spotlights on them and they knocked it out of the park and they right. were the last band to do that. They were, uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, like and I said, you know, take it. Dan Auerbach may be the only person who'll have something to say about that. That's it. That's it. Yeah. No one and, else. And, and, and think about it, though. You know, you it's it's kind of like the uh, the logical last step of we just did this uh, sec, this first Golden Age of Rock series. Yeah. And think about you know you jump the rocks. You know, you go from the initial you know the the Ike Turners to Chuck Berry. Jump on the next rock, Elvis. Jump on the next rock, like uh, Stones and Zeppelin. 
and, and oh, you Beatles, know, you know, <laughs> yeah, Beatles jump on the next rock, Black Sabbath jump yeah. on the next rock, ACDC, yeah. you know, and keep going. And you get punk, pistols, clash, you know, yeah. Like. And I'm just saying, so keep jumping on those. And the White Stripes is probably the last of those rocks, yeah, you know, yeah. and so yeah. you can say that. So they're the end of the line, and they did it as well, if not better, than most of those bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think I think that Jack White is just as much of a talent. Uh, he's one of the brightest guys I think in the history of rock and roll. One of the most inventive. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, De Steel, uh is not their best record, but it's their greatest accomplishment, and I adore that record. One mm-hmm. of the things about uh, preparing for this album or for this, excuse me, this episode was uh, learning to fall in love with that record again. And not only that, but I, I guess a legacy of them too is. Uh, the fact that people could stumble into a club and that may be their biggest legacy is there may be like the great, the last great word of mouth success. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, because like the, the word of mouth, you know, has not pushed Ty Siegel into like, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. It hasn't yeah. pushed OCs either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't, well, I mean, sort of, I mean, remember sort they of, played yeah. Red Rocks, but yeah. Uh, but it doesn't get much bigger than that. I, the only other band, and they were more, more or less contemporaries, like MMJ, My Morning Jacket, kind of had word of mouth. Yeah. But okay, so you know we keep talking about the Black Keys and My Morning Jacket. Jump jump ahead ten years. What mm. Vampire Weekend? Right. Yeah. But yeah. but even there, they're, they're kind of like it. You know, it's a rich. They're, they're not even, I don't call them a rock band. They're they're, they're like they're a pop band. They're an indie yeah. pop band. You know? It's 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 a well-off, educated, Ivy League educated Jew, Jewish kid from New York doing Paul Simon. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's not exactly like you know traditional sort of in the club you know scuzzy yeah. word of mouth. Right. So yeah. So that's it. Just ends once you get past that era. Uh, the word of mouth breakout success becomes a thing of the past. At least in at least in rock, it still happens in hip hop. Uh, mm. You know, it still happens. You know, you get your TikTok accidents like Little Nas X, but with rock, no, it just doesn't happen anymore and probably never will. So too bad. All I could tell you folks is that uh, both of us have uh, what we think are good tastes. uh, Mm -hmm. And I guess that's how we'll end this episode. If you think we have bad taste or good taste or it tastes like shit, uh, let us know. Uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com I mentioned our Facebook uh, Curmudgeon League community which has been pretty active this week there's been some yeah. fun stuff going on up there yeah. uh, facebook.com slash curmudgeonly it's invite only but unless you're like a pedophile that can't be within 500 feet of a school we'll probably let you in yeah. uh, and then yeah uh, Twitter which is still around even though Elon Musk is kind of turning it into a cesspool uh, we're on there we're active uh, you know we, we troll bands that we don't like or we think are nuts but we also extol the, vers- uh, the virtues of fans and writers, especially writers that we do like. Uh, so, and then our handle there is at Curmudgeon Pod. And so uh, that's the places where you can find us. Uh, also listen to us and subscribe to us at any of the platforms where you listen to all of the other podcasts. So uh, maybe we won't be ahead of 60 songs that define the 90s. And we may not, we may not be ahead of anything that Tyler May and Co is doing. But we belong on the same fucking list, damn it. Uh, put us number three in that queue, uh, because yeah. because we're we're just as sharp and we're just as weird as they are. 